Well, thanks to uh, Johnny and the team for leading us in our worship. Would you turn your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 18? Luke chapter 18, that's a very well-known portion of Scripture. Luke chapter 18, and uh, we'll begin to read at verse 9. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. It's lovely to be with you, and uh, thanks to Claire for organizing that. Uh, it's just uh, great. It's a long time since I've been here. I think the last time I preached it probably was in the old building, so that's quite a number of, of years ago. So Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. So I want to turn your attention to this portion of Scripture. It's probably one of the best known, um, worst translated, but most instructive portions of the Word of God. And our Lord gives us very important teaching on acceptable and unacceptable worship. Think about it for a moment. Two men go up to the temple to pray. Both engage in prayer and both leave the temple believing that they have prayed, but only one was accepted by God and the other was uh, rejected by God. And that's because one approached God in the right way and the other approached God in the wrong way. One approached God in his way, in God's way, and the other approached God uh, in his uh, own way. Um, and uh, so it's a very important parable. Uh, I want you to notice three things very simply this morning. You have two men, and you have two prayers, and you have two outcomes. So two men, first of all. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Uh, so you have a Pharisee and a tax collector coming to the temple. Now immediately we hear the word Pharisee, Pharisee after 2,000 years of accumulative um, Christian influence upon our culture, we immediately conclude that he's going to be the villain of the peace. All kinds of damning and negative associations flow into our minds at the mere mention of the word Pharisee. But that wouldn't have been the response in Jesus' original hearers, because the uh, Pharisee was the churchman. He was the fundamentalist in his view of Scripture. He was uh, scrupulous in his observance of the law. He was one who took his faith and his religion uh, seriously. He was uh, a giver to all kinds of charitable causes, and he was uh, uh, enthusiastic about the uh, proclamation of his faith. He was the uh, personification of consistent biblical religion in the eyes of everybody around him. Now, the other man was a, a tax collector. 
or a publican. And again, because tax collectors are usually uh, pillars of the establishment, it comes as no great shock to us that uh, uh, God heard his prayer. But again, that wouldn't have been the case in, uh, uh, when the parable was first delivered because uh, the uh, a tax collector was a, a collaborator with the Roman enemy, somebody who betrayed the people of God into the hands of the enemies of God for a personal profit. So if you think of some uh, French politician during the uh, days of Nazi occupation making himself rich by licking the boots of the Nazis, you'll get some kind of indication how uh, Jews felt about uh, uh, tax collectors in the first century. They didn't just uh, make sarcastic jokes about them, they spat on them, they cursed them in the street, and if they could have got away with it, they would have lynched them because they betrayed the people of God into the hands of the enemies of God. Two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. That brings us to our second point, and you have two prayers. Let's look first of all at the prayer uh, of the, the Pharisee. Um, look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Now, do you notice anything strange about that prayer, Anyone, anything unusual about that prayer? Well, what is prayer? Well, if we use that little acrostic that we were maybe taught as young people based on the word acts, you have adoration, you have confession, you have uh, thanksgiving, and you have supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration, is there any adoration in that prayer? Well, there's no, no praise, there's no worship in that prayer. Is there any confession of sin in that prayer? No, there's no confession of sin uh, in that prayer. Is there any thanksgiving in that prayer? Well, he does thank God, but he thanks God that he's not like other men. And supplication, does he ask for anything? Well, he doesn't ask for anything. And the reason he doesn't ask for anything is because he doesn't feel his need of anything. He feels spiritually secure, spiritually self-sufficient. So Augustine, writing in the 5th century, says, You've come to pray. You've asked for nothing. Why on earth have you come to pray? And the, the truth of the matter is that he is coming to congratulate himself on his own spiritual and moral health. Now, he was in need. He was a sinner because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the point is he didn't feel that need before God. He didn't sense his sin before God. He wasn't, as the Puritans would say, a sensible sinner. He didn't, he didn't feel his need before God. And the reason he didn't feel his need before God was that he was playing little mind games with himself. Notice, first of all, that he has an external view of righteousness. He congratulates himself on uh, not committing external sins. Do you notice that? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. So those are external things. They are outward things. What about the inward things, the sins of the heart? 
that we worship a God who is all-knowing and all-seeing, a God who can peel aside the veneer of our external religion and look right into our hearts and wear hearts. What about those sins? What about his pride, for instance? What about his censorious attitude to, to the man that's standing beside him and worshiping? What about those attitudes? What about the lustful uh, thoughts that consume him? Jesus said if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Or if he has um, hatred towards his brother, he's already violated the sixth commandment. What about those sins? You see, he had this external view of righteousness. But not only did he have an external view of righteousness, but he had a legalistic view of righteousness. You see that there in, uh, in verse 11, uh, he says, or in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The uh, Pharisees had the policy of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays when the law of God commanded the fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. They tithed everything kind of, even the very herbs in their kitchen, when they were cooking, they would weigh out 10% and they would set them aside for God. And this Pharisee, blind to his own need, had convinced himself that by going further than the law had commanded, he was kind of compensating for his failures, that God has this great moral uh, set of skills and glory, and he put your bad deeds in one side, and he put your good deeds in the other, and as long as the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, that you'll, they'll sort of uh, neutralize each other and you'll be, be all right. And even in our postmodern world where people have very little interest or concept of God, you still hear uh, that kind of thinking. I remember meeting a, a woman on door-to-door -door work and I asked her the question, why do you think God uh, will let you into heaven? Why do you think God should let you into heaven on the last day? And she said, quite seriously, she said to me, well, you know, I collect for the USPCA once a year. That, that kind of by going beyond what God required, you were compensating for your failure. So this, this man has no sense need, of need before God. And he's doing that because he has an external view of sin. He has a legalistic view of righteousness. And then thirdly, he's a, a, a relative view of sin. Do you notice how he compares himself to other people. Uh, I am not like other people, like adulterers, like extortioners, like uh, unjust people, or like this tax man. I notice he doesn't compare himself to the great saints of the Old Testament. He doesn't compare himself to Elijah, to Moses. What he does is he picks the worst possible examples of people that he can find, and he compares himself himself to them, that I'm not as bad as the other person. He doesn't compare himself to the great saints of the Old Testament. He doesn't compare himself to God, that God is holy and righteous, that God dwells on an approachable light, that even the angels in the presence of God who remember who have never sinned in the light of his uncreated holiness have to cover their faces and they cry out continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That they, they can't even, though they're holy creatures, they can't even look on his uncreated holiness because his holiness is holiness of, of an altogether different order. It's holiness lifted to the nth degree. But he doesn't compare himself to God. No, he compares himself 
to uh, the worst possible people. And, and, and that's, that's why people read the tabloids, isn't it? That's why people follow Twitter, because they, they love to hear of the moral feelings of other people. They love to hear of uh, Prince Andrew's uh, indiscretions. They love to read about pedophilia. They love to, to, to read about sex scandals, because it kind of just makes them feel a wee bit better about themselves, comparing yourself to others. So, so you have uh, the prayer of the Pharisee. Then notice the prayer of the tax collector uh, in, in verse 12. Uh, uh, verse 13, sorry. But the, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Spurgeon calls this... Uh, a, a, a holy telegram. We would update that and say it's a holy WhatsApp message. It's short, it's to the point, and it's a prayer from the heart. Notice three things about that prayer. First of all, notice the humility he displayed. Look, look at verse 13. We're told that he stood afar off. Stood afar off from what? Well, where is he? He's in the temple. What's significant about the temple? Well, right at the center of the temple is the um, the Holy of Holies, that inner cubicle of the temple where God was said to dwell, where his, he revealed his presence in an unusual and a peculiar way. Now, God fills heaven and earth, but in the old covenant, there in, in uh, that cubicle, he revealed himself um, peculiarly. It's a bit like the church. God's everywhere, but when the church comes together, the church, God is with the church in a way that he isn't with us as individuals. Well, that was true of the Old Testament. And so he stands afar off. He doesn't feel worthy to approach God. He hangs his head. He beats his breast. He cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His whole uh, posture is characterized by a deep, deep sense of humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, humility is the chief of all Christian virtues. It is the hallmark of the true child of God. If you want to know if somebody's truly a Christian, you look for this grace of humility because it's the very essence of the Christian position. What is the Christian position? Is It's this, that I have no confidence in myself and I place my absolute confidence in God. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you, you need to realize that the only contribution that you can make to your salvation is the sin that makes your salvation necessary. That's the only contribution you can make. The sin that makes your salvation necessary is the only contribution that, he, that you can make. So the humility he displayed. There's the, the Pharisee, and he's strutting about the, the temple like a, a peacock, but this man's at a distance. He bows his head, and he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The second thing I want you to notice is the sin that he confessed. Now, here's where our versions break down and aren't as accurate as they should be, because there's a, there's a definite article in the original Greek so he doesn't say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What he says is, God be merciful to me, this sinner. That as he stands in the presence of God, reflects on the holiness of God, he sees himself to be the foulest and the, the filthiest person that stood on the face of the globe that day. 
He's very conscious of his sin. He's, he's sensible towards his sin, as the Puritan said. He's, he, he knows that he has uh, offended God. Uh, I suppose it's a bit like the truth that uh, Paul expressed when he described himself as the chief of sinners. Do you think Paul was the, the greatest sinner that ever lived? Well, what about Hitler? What about Paul Pot? What about Putin? What about Idi Amin? And you say, well, uh, Paul persecuted Christians. Well, Idi Amin ate Christians. He bought them and he ate them. I, I don't think that's what Paul means. I, I think he was reflecting on his, his own spiritual condition before God. He sees himself as the chief of sinners. That 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 this man here acknowledges that he is not just a sinner, that he is the sinner, that he, is, uh, he has offended a holy and righteous God. And, you know, admitting that the Bible's diagnosis of you is actually true can be a very painful experience. One of the bains of my life is going shopping with my wife. I, I hate it with a passion. And uh, sometimes, you know, I'll stand outside the shop and uh, I'm wait for her to come out and uh, rather than being embarrassed sitting outside the changing room. But uh, on one occasion, I was standing outside next in Coleraine and the sun was low in the sky and I saw this very overweight, unattractive mannequin in the window. And, um, you know, you, you, you see that in America, but you never see that here. You never see mannequins that, that are... And a normal size. They're all skinny. But anyway, I was, I was looking at this and I, I thought, oh, that's very unusual. And I went up to investigate and it was me. <laughs> it was my, my own reflection in the window. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes it's a painful thing to face up to the problem of sin. And to admit to God that what he says about you in his word is actually true, that you've sinned and offended a holy and righteous God. So we, we, we have this humility that he displayed, the sin that he confessed, and the third thing is that the mercy that he desired. He says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, that word mercy isn't the usual word for mercy in the New Testament. If we were to translate that as accurately as we could and as accurately as we should, we'd have to use a, an old English word, propitiation. What he says is actually, God be propitious to me, a sinner. Now, propitiation is a word that's borrowed from the sacrificial uh, system of the Old Testament, and it really uh, is, it means a diversion, it means a turning away. So if you imagine this is us in our sin, and God is justifiably angry with that sin, propitiation is a, a turning away, a deflection in the wrath of God. It's a turning away of the, the wrath of God, so it falls on something else. Do you remember the um, Challenger space shuttle that uh, uh, tragically exploded as it re-entered the um, Earth's atmosphere a number of years ago? And uh, the, the problem was that there were some of those heat-reflected 
reflecting tiles that were missing from the, uh, the, the body of the, the, the spaceship. Uh, and, and the spaceship overheated and then exploded in midair. Those tiles are known as propitiation tiles. It's, it's a turning away, a deflection of. Now, think of where this man is. He's, he's <coughs> in the temple. He's standing away back. He's standing afar off from the holy place, from the holy of holies. But between him and the holy place, there's an altar. And on that altar, a, a sacrifice uh, has just been offered. There, was, there were daily sacrifices. Ju- Judaism was a bloody religion. Blood everywhere. You, you couldn't escape it. And he, he's gone into the temple. He's standing at a distance. He's confessing his sin. He perhaps lifts his eyes and he looks at the sacrifice. Uh, He sees the blood, and from the depths of his heart, he cries out, God, be propitious to me, a sinner. Turn your anger, your justifiable anger, away from, from me and pour it out on that sacrifice. Count that sacrifice, that blood sacrifice uh, on my behalf. Punish, punish that sacrifice. Reckon that sacrifice, my sin to that sacrifice, rather than to me. And that's why this man's worship was accepted, because he came in God's way. He came humbly, he came confessing his sin, and he came pleading the blood of the sacrifice. Now, the final sacrifice, the full sacrifice, the best sacrifice, the the ultimate sacrifice was the Lord Jesus Christ when he died upon the cross, shed his blood, and purchased our salvation. And that's the way we must come. We must come acknowledging our sin um, and pleading the sacrifice, humbling ourselves. And that can be one of the hardest things to do, uh, acknowledging our sin that the Bible's diagnosis of us is actually true and pleading the merits of his final sacrifice. And you say, well, that's okay for you, Stephen, but I'll come in my way and on my terms and in my time. But do you think if there was any other way that you could be saved and any other way that you could be forgiven other than by the the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on Calvary's cross, that God would have sent his son into that horrific experience to die in the place of sinners if there was any other way that you could be forgiven other than by the way that he has determined? There is one way. There's one way, and that's coming humbly, and that's coming acknowledging your sin, what the Bible calls repentance, and putting your trust in the bloodshedding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why this man was accepted, and why the other man was rejected, because he came in God's way, on God's terms, humbly, acknowledging his sin and pleading the sacrifice. You must come in God's way. Who are you or who am I to determine how we should come to God, how we find acceptance uh, before God other than the way that he has revealed? So you have two men 
You have uh, two prayers, and then finally you have, you have uh, two outcomes. Now look at the outcome, first of all, for um, the Pharisee there in verse 11. And again, our versions aren't great, uh, but, but literally it, we're told in verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed to himself. God, I thank you. Literally, he prayed to himself. God, I thank you. Isn't, isn't that a searching analysis of self-worship and self-deification? He prayed to himself. God, I thank you. He had made his own understanding of God um, uh, his, his accepted understanding of God. He, he was putting his mind above what God had revealed in his word. So he prayed to himself, and there, there are thousands of people, millions of people around our world, sincere people, who are engaging in acts of worship today, but those acts of worship are not acceptable because, to, to God. They pray to themselves. Their worship begins and ends with themselves because... They're not coming in God's way, which is humbly acknowledging your sin, pleading the sacrifice. And it's tragic. It's tragic. Sincere people engaging in acts of worship, acts that begin and end with themselves because they're not coming in God's appointed way. Secondly, notice the outcome as far as they... Uh, Pharisee is uh, concerned. Look at verse 14. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself uh, will be exalted. Um, justified. That's a great word, justified. And every Christian needs to understand what that word means. Now, if you were in, in uh, Sunday school, you were maybe told justification means just as if I had never sinned. Did you ever hear that? Forget that. that. That's not true. Justification is not just as if I had never sinned. What justification is, is an imputation of righteousness. It's what the reformers call double imputation. So that, that when you believe in Christ, your sin is credited to him. That he died a substitutionary death to take away your sin. But his righteousness is taken and credited to your account. It's, you're clothed in his righteousness. You're given what Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside yourself. So, so your sin is put to him, and he dies and takes away that sin. But that's not the end of the story. His righteousness is taken and credited to your account. Uh, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness... Death and righteousness, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming world, and these are red. With joy shall I lift up my head. We sang it earlier, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in 
righteousness divine. Do you get this? Like, like if you're a Christian, you're, you're, you're sitting there as righteous in God's sight as Jesus Christ himself. It nearly sounds blasphemous. And it would be blasphemous if it wasn't true. But it is true. Paul begins the, the letter to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, listen, in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed. A righteousness is given, which is by faith from first to last. Jesus came to do what we could never do, to fulfill all righteousness. And on his baptism, and that voice of his Father declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, that there was nothing in his life Nothing in his life that displeased his father or, 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 or grieved his father. Nothing in his life. All the righteousness that he displayed is taken and credited to the account of the believer when he believes. So it's not just as if I had never sinned. It's just as if I'd always obeyed. That's the gospel. J. Adams, the American... A counselor says that 95% of all pastoral problems could be dealt with. The sense of inferiority and those struggles with guilt could be dealt with if people had a, a proper understanding of justification by faith. But it's not just the removal of sin. It's the imputation of righteousness. When I was a boy... Um, I had a very rich and a very foolish aunt who asked me to do page boy at uh, my cousin's wedding. And it was a very kind of uh, extravagant wedding. They had a, a plane flying across, you know, trailing a banner, you know, congratulations. And they dropped rice out of the plane on the bridal party as they emerged. And, of course, didn't realize the momentum that rice would pick up. And we were all... <laughs> all ducking for cover, you know, when, when the rice was falling and that kind of thing. But anyway, she bought me a page boy's outfit. So it was, a, it was a, a white tuxedo, matching white trouser, frilly shirt, and a dicky bow. And it was hanging up in my father's bedroom with the polythene pulled over the top, ready for the big day. And uh, I had a friend across the road, and he came out one day dressed as a cowboy. You know, he had the Stetson, and he had the, the, the jacket, big sheriff's badge, and his gun tied to his side. And uh, I was insanely jealous of this. And I said, you know, I have an outfit. And he says, what, what kind of outfit do you have? And I says, I have a James Bond outfit. <laughs> and he said, let me see. And uh, so I sneaked into my father's bedroom. Took the polythene off, put on the trousers, put on the frilly shirt. It was a clip-on bow tie, so thank, thankfully that was the true. And uh, I got a gun from somewhere, a toy gun. And uh, anyway, I went out to Strickland's Glen in Bangor, which is a cross between a country park and uh, a park. And so we jumped a few rivers. We rolled in some grass. We hid in some bushes. And... Uh, uh, 
that, so there was a tear in the jacket. There was mud ground into the, the, uh, the, the trousers. And I went back and put it back in the hanger, pulled the polythene over it. And when my dad came in, he went ballistic. Right? Rightfully so. But he went absolutely ballistic. But my very rich and very foolish aunt took that tuxedo away and bought me a brand new one. Clean. Clean. And that's what happens in the gospel. Justification, our sin is taken and put to Christ. And his beauty and his righteousness is put on us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that absolutely glorious? That if you're a Christian, I want you to just, for this to drop into your, your head, if you're a Christian this morning, you're as righteous in God's sight as Jesus Christ himself. That he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And if, if, if you, this man went home justified. If you're a Christian, you're going to go home justified. And I hope you go home with a spring in your step. Justified. I, I'm righteous in God's sight. What could be better than that? I'm righteous in God's sight. My sin has been taken away and I'm righteous. And if you're not a Christian, my prayer is that sitting in your seat right now, you'll come humbly. You'll come and acknowledge your sin. And you'll put your trust in the final sacrifice that you too, you too, might go home justified. Two men, two prayers, two outcomes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the gospel is glorious, absolutely glorious, that through, through our faith in Jesus Christ, that not only is our sin removed, but we're clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh God, that everybody here, every single person here, might go home justified, might come and put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And those of us that are justified will rejoice in that, and that when the devil comes with his insinuations and accusations, that we can point to the death and to the righteousness, to the death and life of your Son, and know, O oh God, that we're accepted in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to close our service by singing, Yet not I, uh, but through Christ uh, in me. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. And we'll stand and worship the Lord.